say c'est bon. Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. For the next half hour, I'll be presenting to you news, happenings, and personalities from Paris's extraordinary culinary world. So sit back and get ready to enjoy a full half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Like those French people do. Because it's all so good. Today on Paris Good Food and Wine, I'll be bringing you a special report about the attempts to revive a very particular French gastronomic tradition that puts a tiny little bird called the ortolan front and center. That interview is with the distinguished food legal expert Jean-Paul Branlard. Next, We'll hear part two of Gabrielle Mondesir's interview with one of France's superstar bakers, Frédéric Lalos. Then, Alec Lebrano joins us again in studio with his restaurant review for Paris's hot and trendy new Porte Deux. For our wine segment, I'll talk with Jonathan Bauer Monterey, who was named France's Sommelier of the Year for 2015 by prestige food magazine Galt et Mio. Then, for our proverbial cherry on top, Emily Dilling brings you her market report with all that's fresh from Paris's Domenil Market. So stay with me, Paige Donner, for the next half hour as we bring you all that's delicious from Paris, good food and wine. The ortolan is a legendary dish in French cuisine. The aura and myth surrounding it seem to have deepened after it was declared a protected species and banned from French menus in 1999. Thus begins the reporter's notebook piece by New York Times business reporter Liz Alderman following her feature, International New York Times article, about the ortolan just days before, October 13, 2014, to be exact. The ortolan in case you're wondering, is a tiny songbird that lives in the southwest of France. Traditionally, when consuming this delicacy, people eat the blood, bones, flesh, and guts in a single rush of steaming culinary delight, or so the legend has it. There's a murmuring debate now in response to a petition by four prominent French chefs to allow for the legal consumption of the ortolan for a few days per year. So, Recently, when I found myself face-to-face at a public gathering with one of France's foremost legal food experts, Jean-Paul Branlard, I could not resist asking him for his professional opinion about this matter. We're talking with Jean-Paul Branlard, and Jean-Paul Branlard is a lecturer and teacher researcher at Jean Monnet Law School, Paris Sud 11 University which is linked to the CERDI, which is the Center for Study and Research in Immaterial Rights. He's been molded by Pantheon Azas, which is Paris 2 University, University, and he has a PhD in private law. In the field of food, culinary, and gastronomy law, Jean-Paul Brenlard has contributed to many publications. Galt Millot (laughs) magazine, uh, La Vie Judiciaire, Chocolat Confiserie magazine, Option Qualité, Cuisine Collective. 
He's the pedagogical advisor and lecturer at the Institut de Gou Institute, IHEG, and he teaches food law, notably at Paris Sorbonne University. Uh, Miss, uh, Mr. Benlard, I'm asking you to a uh, question about the uh, the resurgence of the ortolan, this, tradi this French tradition. Alors, uh, je vais vous poser the question. But you you understood me, so please uh, explain to us what this tradition means and, and why are people wanting it to be uh, legal now again? Bon, alors donc euh, si je suis interrogé sur euh, un projet que quelques chefs euh, ont I am being asked about a project developed by a few chefs to reintroduce the French tradition of consuming a little bird we know well in France since it's a tradition that is from southwest France where they have the right to hunt kill and eat it this bird is called the ortolan the subject of debate right now is whether we have the right to eat this little bird called the ortolan. Generally speaking in France, we have the right to eat whatever is not specifically forbidden to eat. There are certain animal species that are not authorized to be eaten. For example, we are not allowed to consume hedgehogs, the little animal with spikes on its back, because it is protected by an international agreement ratified in Bern, Switzerland, and by a ban in France as well. There are instances of animals that are allowed to be consumed, but only by the hunter. Meaning, we don't have the right to commercialize the consumption of these specific animals. If the hunter has killed the animal, then in this case we have the right to consume it. Take for example the woodcock, which is another type of bird with long legs and beak. If a hunter has hunted and killed this bird during the authorized hunting season, then the hunter has the right to consume it and share it amongst friends. But still, you don't have the right to commercialize it. The ortolan is a bit more complicated. Firstly, because the consumption of it has been forbidden since a long time. So, if we want to restore the right to consume this bird, that means that we would have to delete the text in the law that has forbidden its consumption for so long. You have to keep in mind that the trapping, hunting and eating of the ortolan has been a tradition, most notably in the southwest of France, since a long time. But because the way it is consumed necessitates that it is kept alive in a tiny little cage and fattened up prior to its being eaten, this poor little bird can't move in its cage, it's completely stuck in its little box. So there's an element to this that is inhumane, provided it were human. It's inhumane how this little bird is treated prior to its being consumed. That is why the consumption of this little bird has been forbidden since a long, long time already. So the chefs who want to re-establish this tradition 
even just periodically, meaning for only a few days in a year, just to appreciate the tradition of its consumption, have to petition for the text of the law forbidding the bird's consumption to be deleted and revised. Now we, we have issues, uh, even with foie gras, and mainly because to obtain foie gras, it is through a method of force-feeding the duck or goose by shoving food like corn down its throat and into its stomach. And in France today, like in many other countries around the world, there are many organizations that are petitioning to get rid of foie gras, so that we don't cause these poor ducks and geese to suffer any longer. So think about it, we are at present in the process of taking action to save these animals, because the production of foie gras continues, so we can't imagine, not seriously anyway, that Parliament, meaning the senators and assemblymen, will re-establish the legal consumption of the ortolan. Nor will the government by decree, because it would have to be by decree, or by order, reauthorize the consumption of the ortolan. There would immediately be protests by animal rights activists and organizations who would oppose this. And there is not a powerful movement to repeal this law forbidding the consumption of the ortolan. Sure, anything can happen, but I highly doubt that tomorrow or even next week you will be able to eat an ortolan in a restaurant. In fact, probably not even in our lifetime. And concerning the rumor that François Mitterrand once consumed an ortolan as one of his final meals before passing away, that remains an unconfirmed rumor, correct? Yes, that's right. In France, there is still freedom of press and media, and while François Mitterrand was still president of the Republic, Several journalists launched a rumor, a rumor meaning talk that runs rampant but has no definite proof. And the rumor was that while he was president, one time he was invited somewhere and that there had been ortolans served and that he had partaken of it. So then if this act had been proven, which it never was, because uh, President Mitterrand never confirmed this at all. He never stated that it was true, so it remains just a rumor. But if this act had been proven, it, it would have been serious because that would have meant that the President had disobeyed the law, and of course, that would be a real strike against him and his character image. But this act was never proven, and it remains just a rumor, like many of the rumors that run rampant about anyone, about anything and everything. But if it had proven true, uh, it would have been really embarrassing for him. Okay, so it was, it's just a rumor, it was never proven. Okay, merci beaucoup, Monsieur Benlar. Merci, et je vous souhaite une très bonne continuation. Thank you, and I wish you well on your continued path and your great interest in all things gastronomic. Next up is restaurant critic Alec Lebrano with his review of Porte Deux, he joined me at our World Radio Paris studios for this taping. Wondering where to eat today in Paris? Here we have Alec Lebrano with us, the author of Hungry for Paris, 
with one of his newer restaurant reviews. And this one is an edgy new international cuisine restaurant that is all abuzz these days. Uh, tell us a little bit about Porta Duz, Alec. Well, Porta Duz is located in um, an old clothing factory in the 10th arrondissement which was a, a central Paris district that's really interesting because it's rapidly gentrifying. And the restaurant was founded by a very famous, one of the best chefs in Singapore, which is one of the world's great food cities. I put it right up there with Paris. Uh, the chef's name is André Chang. And André wanted to invest in a Paris restaurant, so he, set, he sent his sous chef, a Frenchman named Vincent Capel, uh, who'd been working with him in Singapore to Paris to uh, to be the acting chef at Porte Douze. And the area, it's in the 10th arrondissement, is that correct? That's right. So w- this area seems to be kind of um, a bit of a, a, an exploding foodie area in terms of new restaurants and, and cutting-edge chefs. Is, is this in keeping in line with well, that? Well, the, the, the 10th, for anyone who doesn't know, it is a central Paris neighborhood. And one of the reasons that it's such a popular venue for people opening restaurants today in Paris is the rents are reasonable. Um, it's easy to get to, and the neighborhood provides a, a good receptive clientele because a lot of internet firms, design agencies... Um, creative businesses are located in the 10th and younger younger creative Parisians uh, are in, moving into the neighborhood so they provide a ready clientele and as I said the rents are good so it's a great place for, for chefs to set up shop. What does this place look like since it's brand new? What kind of decor? Did, uh... it's, a, it's beautiful. They, um, because it was a clothing factory the, um, they make a reference to its past through copper wire light fixtures that are shaped like dressmakers' dummies. And it's a very elegant, uh, understated, contemporary, fine, fine look, and it's a, which is very much a reflection of Vincent Crepel's cooking. It's a small space. There's a bar and a mezzanine where people can go for a drink after dinner. It's a very small bar in the mezzanine. Um, the chef works in a minuscule open kitchen. You can see the four of them working behind a counter. It's it's mesmerizing performance every night. And um but they've been very careful not to not to over decorate a small space. Prudent maybe. <laughs> mm, I think so, you bet. And so uh, what kind of a cuisine with with somebody like Andre Chang backing it do we have Asian influence? Very much so. I mean uh, Vincent Capel is from the southwest in France. So he he has Gascon uh, roots, um, but the experience in Asia has exposed him to lots of new produce and techniques. And so when coming back to France, he, it's not fusion cooking. It's a uh, much more intelligent and much more subtle than that. But he every culture has its own preferred flavor pairings. For example, in Central Europe, there's a lot, they use a lot of dill. In France, they like thyme. Uh, in Southeast Asia, the, the herbs are everything from lemongrass to Thai basil. And um, Vincent came back to Paris with an, uh, an exposure to the, the way that the Asians cook, and it informs his menus. Uh, a memorable dish that, that you might go back to the restaurant, back to Porte Duz for one more time? What, um, the menu changes constantly there. So if you do decide to, to try the restaurant, and you really should, the menu, I think, is revised almost daily. 
not completely, but it changes daily according to the chef's inspiration and the produce. Um, but a dish that I particularly liked when I went the other night was a, a, um, a grilled mackerel that came in a pool of uh, jade-colored cucumber juice with deep-fried uh, baby fish and um, borage, borage, uh, the herb borage, which tastes like oysters. And it was a beautiful, subtle, really deceptively simple, but ultimately very complex and very accomplished dish. So what kind of a rating can we can we get from you uh, for, for this? Discussion? I would give the, the Porte de Douze. I think they're really well out the gate, and I think that, they, uh, they, that Vincent Cattel uh, richly warrants an A-, and it's a restaurant I very much look forward to going back to. I look forward to checking it out myself, too. Thank you, Alan. You're very welcome, Paige. Now... Paris Good Food and Wine contributor Gabrielle Mondesir's second half of her interview with the esteemed baker Frederick Lalos. Welcome to part two of our interview with Chef Frédéric Lalos, bread baker extraordinaire. Today, the chef talks about the importance of bread in France and gives a professional's tip for consistent results that you can apply when baking bread at home. Although bread and France are still inextricably linked, Chef Lalos says that over time, there's been a significant decrease as to how much bread the French eat. I'm lucky enough to travel all over the world, and you notice very quickly that bread in France is something fundamental and essential. Even if, despite everything, consumption is going down, which bothers me because at the turn of the century in 1900, we ate almost 900 grams, which is two pounds of bread per person and per day. Today, we're at less than 150 grams per person and per day. So it's gone down quite a lot over these last 120 years. But that being said, it's still a food that everyone knows that is really well rooted in our culture. So that that's great. And I fight for the quality of bread and for bread consumption. I tell myself that we bread makers must work to stop this curve where people eat less and less bread. It's the effect of society. It's young people. I have children. They like bread, of course. But you feel very quickly that they'll eat cereal in the morning. They'll eat cornflakes things like that and I, I give them a nice slice of bread but you feel very quickly that they're at a generation where hamburgers are making inroads and where perhaps they eat less bread than 50 years ago that's for sure so we really need to make sure people start eating bread again and for me the best remedy is that all together we fight for quality and we only make high quality chef Lalos is all for people trying their hand at baking bread at home in fact that's one of the reasons he decided to write a book, Le Pain, L'Envers du Décor, available in a bilingual French and English version. One factor he says can improve the home baker's results is something you might not think of as an important element in your recipe, the temperature of the dough. La pâte, je voulais exprimer au tout démarrage, elle est vivante. 
The dough, as I said in the beginning, is alive. It's alive and it needs to have a very precise temperature to be able to ferment correctly. In order to understand, it's exactly like you when you get up in the morning. A human being's temperature is between 37 and 37.5 Celsius. If your temperature were 35 or if it were 40, you might not be here with me this morning because you would be too weak or you would have a fever and you would be taking care of yourself. And dough is the same. As soon as the kneading is done, your dough should be at a temperature of around 24 or 25 Celsius. But how do you know your dough has the right final temperature? The answer lies in a simple calculation. And how do you calculate that? You calculate it, it's a little bit technical, but not that complicated. There are three ingredients, three main things, the water, the flour, and the locale where you're working in. And altogether, the sum of the temperature of these three things must equal 58. For those unfamiliar with Celsius, 58 degrees Celsius equals 136 degrees Fahrenheit. If your room is 20 degrees, the flour in the room is 20 degrees. So the room 20, the flour 20, that's 40. You need your water at 18 degrees. It's as simple as that. In the summer, if the room temperature is 25, your flour is 25, that's 50. So, your water should be at 8 degrees. This interplay with the living dough is part of what makes bread baking so exciting to Chef Lalos. And that's what's so charming about every morning, when you arrive every morning at 3 a.m. and we start to take the temperatures with our little thermometers. And that's why when people say to me, you know, Mr. Lalos, in boulangerie you mix together flour and water, it's a little more complicated than that, because there's a whole science behind it. You need to pay attention to lots of parameters, such as temperature of water, fermentation and all that. And that's the charm of this beautiful profession. That concludes part two of our interview with Chef Lalos. This has been Gabriel Mondesir reporting for Paris Good Food and Wine. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. Next is my interview with France's Sommelier of the Year for 2015, Jonathan Bauer Monterey. Okay, and we're rolling, so if you want to just introduce yourself and tell us who you are. So, I am Jonathan bauer Monneret. I am French, and I'm the head sommelier of Spree. Are there any wines that you're particularly excited about at this moment? So, I'm from Alsace, so I'm a big fan about, uh, about Pinot Gris, about Riesling, and as the red, I'm a big fan of Northern Rhone Valley wine, with Syrah, the Côte Roti, the, the Saint-Joseph. I particularly like to drink uh, Saint-Joseph Cuvée du Papy from Stéphane Montez. It's so good as many Côte Roti. It's really juicy, fleshy, peppery, and it's unbelievable wine to drink now. Great. And tell us a little bit about your um, evolution as a, as a sommelier. Where, where were you before spring? What led up to your spring experience? So I was before in the, the Royal Monceau, it's a palace in, in Paris, designed by, by Philippe Stark. And I spent four years in Mauritius Island to discover wine from other countries, uh, food from other country, and uh, another, another philosophy about the, the touristic and the hotel keeping. 
And you said you were you're originally from from Alsace. What part of Alsace or what what town or village? I was born in Strasbourg, in the main city of Alsace. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any favorites um, from Alsace that you want to share? One of my favorite producers. Uh, I would like to speak about uh, Juslin, the man Juslin. is moving a lot in the in the, in the vineyard. They have, now it's all organic and biodynamic produ producing, and they do fantastic wine. Quite always dry, dry style of uh, of Riesling and Pinot Gris, and very good Pinot Noir too, because Pinot Noir start to be as good as some Burgundy now. Uh, I love Albermann too, the producer Albermann. He is specialized about about different Grand Cru, the Schlossberg, the Fürstentum, the Hengst. So it's really interesting to, to understand the, um, the difference of taste between with an, uh, only one grape on different soil. So that's why I love this different producer. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay tuned as Emily Dilling takes you with her to Paris's Dominil Market to discover what's fresh now. I'm Emily Dilling for Paris Good Food and Wine, and this is the Paris Market Report. Today we're exploring Marché Dominil in the 12th arrondissement. Marché Dominil is the longest market in Paris, and it's where you will find an enormous selection of produce, meat, cheese, fish, and freshly baked bread. While there are several certified organic stands at this market, I prefer to buy local, from independent farmers. That's why I always stop by to see Jean-Luc Dormois when I visit Marché Dominion. Jean-Luc's farm is only 25 kilometers from Paris, in the Ile-de-France region, and he's always happy to take the time to talk about his beautiful vegetables. This time of year, Jean-Luc has all kinds of interesting varieties of seasonal produce, including winter squash, radish, and cabbage, as well as a wide array of root vegetables such as parsnips, turnips, potatoes, and carrots. One thing I love about shopping at Jean-Luc's stand is that he always has advice and recommendations for how to prepare his vegetables. On this November visit, Jean-Luc, hearing my American accent, offered a suggestion for which pumpkin I could use to make a pumpkin pie for Thanksgiving. It's this kind of care and attention from the farmers, with both their products and their customers, that makes Paris markets such a pleasure to discover. The selection of organic and local vegetables at Marché Dominion can be so overwhelming that you forget about the other great products you can find at the market. Le Verger de Picardie stand has a huge selection of different kinds of apples, as well as fresh juices and ciders. They also sell a small selection of locally grown products such as endives and foraged walnuts. Another favorite vendor at the market is the gray-haired Monsieur Chevreux, who sells goat's cheese from the Touraine region in the Loire Valley. This friendly vendor explained his different varieties of chèvre to me, including the local specialty, a raw milk goat's cheese called Saint-Maur. The particularity of this regional cheese is that cheesemakers insert a piece of straw in the middle of the cylindrical ashy chèvre to help it keep its form. Oh, okay, on le retire avant qu'on coupe, c'est ça? Oui, c'est okay. ça, la Vous l'avez la trouver, vous la cherchez là, vous tirez la paille, elle est comme ça. Okay. Monsieur Chevreux showed me how to remove the straw by sliding it out of the center of the cheese. This should be done before cutting into the chèvre. 
He also advises that you remove the scent more from the refrigerator and let it sit long enough to come to room temperature before serving. That's all the time we have for today's market report, but you can continue to explore Marché Dominial on Tuesdays and Fridays until 2.30 p.m. on Boulevard du Rouilly in the 12th arrondissement. For Paris Good Food and Wine, I'm Emily Dilling, and this has been the Paris Market Report. Thanks for joining us for this half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Myself, Paige Donner, and the rest of the team look forward to seeing you again here for the next episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. Because it's so, so good. Ah, mwah, voila. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.